You can be turning to the New Testament <coughs> letter of James. Um, we're getting into the home stretch in, uh, in this particular series through this, this letter. And um, if, you're, if you're new with us, it is our custom here to preach through books of the Bible, or at least a section of a book of the Bible. Uh, occasionally, we'll do a topical series, but there, there's a lot of reasons why we do that. One of them is this, that that prevents us from intentionally or unintentionally skipping things that we might not want to talk about or things that we might be hesitant to talk about or things that might cause it to get weird in the room, like the passage today. Uh, today is a, a prophetic warning from James. And it's not just to the church, it's to everyone, the entire culture. And um, as such... It does what every good prophetic warning should do. It offends you. It calls us to account. It, uh, it reminds, it pulls the veil back so that we can see eternal realities that we're very tempted to not see, especially as people who, um, who, li- who are living in an affluent Western society, who globally speaking, whether you have plenty or nothing, we are the 1%, globally speaking. No, no doubt about it. And, um, and this passage has some things to say to us, but also to the world around us. So let's read it. And remember, this is actually the living God speaking to the world and to us as people. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Uh, Help us now, Father, as we look at a hard word. Uh, Give us ears that can hear it rightly as your people. Um, I pray that by the help of your spirit, we would understand and internalize and be transformed uh, so that we can love and worship you alone and therefore uh, use all that you provide for your glory. Um, help us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I, don't, I don't often speak positively of Hollywood, California or Georgia for that matter, um, but I will this morning for just a moment. Consciously or unconsciously, Hollywood, and by Hollywood, I mean the, the entertainment industry, um, does something for us that is actually a service. Now, normally when Christians talk about Hollywood, it's all negative. These people are corrupt in young minds, and they're evil, and blah, and we get that, right? I mean, if you make garbage and we consume garbage, it has an effect on us, right? That's true, yes. But you know what Hollywood does really well for us is it serves as a mirror. 
holding it up to our face and saying, do you want to know what all of your beliefs and assumptions and, um, and thoughts are? Here are the movies that show you. So Hollywood effectively functions as a mirror for our society and shows us, here's what we really think and believe and assume is true. One of the ways that they do that so well, and it's been this way from the silent movies of the 20s all the way to today, is um, the assumption that goes something like this. You should, I should, try to get as much money and as many possessions and to get as much status from that money as humanly possible. And you should try to do the same for your children. I mean, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers danced and apparently slept in tuxedos, right? When everybody else was dressed in rags and eating whatever they could find in the middle of the Great Depression. Because why? That's what we want our life to look like. We want what Fred and Ginger have. All the way up to the um, um, James Bond. Sean Connery always had the nicest car, the greatest gadgets, tons of money at his disposal, and was the ideal for what, you know, a man might want to be. This is what it should be like. Smokey and the Bandit. Um, run illegal substances for a sum of money if that's what's required to make the gain while eluding the local law enforcement, right? Uh, Burt Reynolds is a hero. Of course he is. He's Burt Reynolds. You ever notice the houses in modern movies? They're like something out of a magazine. And if someone's living in a, a, a very diminished place, that's not the goal. Every meal that you see eaten is amazing. Every car, car is a marvel. Uh, all that to say, entertainment captures this assumption that if you're wealthy, you're living. If you're not, that's the goal. And um, if you need to break laws and cheat and steal and lie and run over other people to, to get wealth, then that's fine because that really is what life is is all about. Again, this is just the assumption of the culture in which we live. We, we, everybody uses this phrase, the almighty dollar, tongue-in-cheek. You know what we're saying when we use that term. It, it's, it is the almighty dollar, meaning we worship our wealth or the idea of having wealth. This is nothing new, which is why what James said in this passage was so pointed and so clear and would have been a slap to the face just, just like it is today for us. Now, what he wants to tell us very clearly is, is that God will bring to account everybody who worships their accounts. And because that's true, there's two responses for us. That one, if that's true, then we shouldn't love money. If that's true, we also should take heart when we suffer. Let's look at each of those responses and try to understand what James is, is saying to us here. First, if God is going to bring to account all who worship their accounts, then don't love money. It's a different tone that James strikes here in verses 1 through 6. He starts the same way as he did in chapter 4, verse 13. Very clearly a different audience that he has in mind. There he's speaking to Christians. Here it seems like he's broadened it. He's going outside the walls of the church. And he, he mentions the rich in a way that he mentioned it before in the book. Um, we've said this before, having or not having is morally indifferent. It's fine for God to give you lots of money. It's fine for him not to give you much money. The question is, what's your heart doing with it, right? You can have plenty and be thankful and generous and live a faithful life before the Lord. Amen. You can be poor 
And you can live a faithless life before the Lord because you're constantly wanting more and groaning and complaining about what you don't have. See, that's not the issue. The heart is the issue. And when he mentions the rich here, what he's making clear is he means the rich who absolutely love and adore and worship and build their lives on and all of their security and and everything about their life is built on having wealth. It's likely that most of them are not Christians. It will become clear that, in fact, the Christians are the people who are working for these unrighteous rich and, in fact, are being ran over by them. So this is a prophetic pronouncement on the culture of its day. But listen, prophetic pronouncements are to be heard by the world, yes, and they're to be heard by us. If you were an Israelite and you heard a pronouncement against Babylon, that is both good news for you. Our enemies are going to be destroyed and... It's a, yeah, and so we better take heed too, lest we fall. So similar for us. So he sums up the problem in verse 3. He says, you've laid up treasure in the last days. Now we, he, we see last days and we think future. They heard last days and they thought, now. Last days New Testament is the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ and that period in between. So were they in the last days? Yes. Are you in the last days? Yes. 500 years from now, if people are still around and Jesus hasn't returned, are they in the last days? Yes. Um, he says, you're, you're laying up treasure. And he uses language that is exactly what Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount when he was trying to teach his people, hey, here's how to live in the last days. And Jesus said, um, do not lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. And he uses that language. This is exactly what they're doing. Laying up treasure for themselves. These treasures, verse 2, are rotting. These fine garments are moth-eaten. Their gold and silver is corroding. And part of his point is to say, if you trust this as a security, it's absolutely going to fail you. The very thing that you think will never fail will absolutely fail. Your your silver and your gold will corrode and rot, and you'll, you'll be left with nothing. Your fine clothes will be gone. It won't last. If you're a Christian... He wants you to understand the very thing that you might be tempted to pine for and to think will make your life better. Ultimately, if that's our security, it, it won't last. It won't fail. It is a, a worthless fortress. Beyond that, he wants them to understand if you trust in wealth for your identity, that's a pretty lousy identity too. How do we know that he's talking about identity? Well, who you are dictates what you do, right? Your identity, who you think you are, what what defines you, will absolutely dictate how you live, what you do, your ethics. So again, look at what they do, and that'll tell us about their identity. Look at verse 4, how they treat their laborers who mow their fields. As the blood of Abel cried out from the ground to the ears of the Lord when Cain murdered him, so the unpaid wages of these laborers cry out to the ears of the Lord. Um, from those who have not been paid. They're mistreating their workers. They're not paying them fairly. And we say, okay, I mean, there's financial injustice that happens. We live in a system that there's always credit. You can always kind of make it Band-Aid from here to here. They did not. It was a creditless society. If you don't get paid, you don't eat. And not only are you not eating, your family's not eating. So for them to withhold wages is to threaten their very existence. And it says the cries of the harvesters are reaching the ears of the Lord. The rich love their money. It constitutes their identity so much 
they think that that is what life is all about so much that if they have to run over other people to keep it, who cares, right? They have no problem cheating their laborers out of their wages. That's what happens when having more becomes your identity. Your identity is, becomes what you will gladly destroy another to defend and keep and prop up. Unless your identity happens to be in God himself. Then suddenly you find that you have this freedom to give your life away for the sake of others because you have everything that you could possibly ever need in Christ. That identity frees you to give. If you are someone who is building your identity around your status and your money, you will give up the lives of others to defend your identity. That's just how it works. And James wants it all crystal clear. This won't go on forever. Uh, I, I know that it's this way, and this is first century. Uh, I know that it's this way. This is 21st century. It won't go on this way forever. Those who live in luxury and self-indulgence without thought for God will find themselves, verse 5, facing a day of slaughter, a day of the Lord, like we read earlier from Zephaniah. I hope that when you heard that, that sounded so strange. And maybe it took you to a place of like a red-faced preacher screaming at you or something like that. But judgment always feels that way. Or it always sounds that way. Judgment always sounds ridiculous, far-fetched, old-fashioned, archaic, impossible when you're not in the middle of it. Possibly it seemed that way to those in Noah's day as well. And James wants it clear. Judgment's coming. So if you trust in money, uh, God will judge. Don't love your money. Lest we miss the seriousness, I, I do want to kind of double down on this agricultural image that James gives us, which is... Um, just in the world of biblical literature, this is, this is a delight right here. Uh, look at verse 5. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Now, two ideas are happening in that sentence. One is it's describing the inner life of the person who loves riches. It's their hearts are becoming fat. Now, I'm no doctor, shockingly to you, I'm sure. I, I don't know that I need a white coat to tell you that a fat heart is not good, right? We all kind of in, intuit that. Think about the spiritual sense of what he's saying. Their inner man, you can almost visualize it, a layer of desensitizing, unfeeling, unhealthy, bloatedness, right? It's kind of disgusting. That's his point. And he's trying to say, if you trust in your riches, that's what's happening on your insides. You can't see that. You can't see what's happening on your insides. But he's trying to say that's what's actually going on. But really, the, the image is about judgment. So he says the, the fattening of the hearts is, is coming up to a day of slaughter. I, I grew up around cows. Some of you have done the same. And we ate them because they are meat, right? That's um, why we raised them. And the time would come for us when we would put up steers, usually, and we would put them in a pen. And for a period of time, those, those cows were, were having their best life now, Right? I mean, they're getting as much sweet feed as they could ever want. You get the bucket out, they come running, and they're eating, and they're as much as a cow can be. They're happy, and they're getting fatter, and all the world seems glorious. And you just got to put yourself in the mindset of a cow at that point, which I know they don't think like we do. I am aware. But if you were a cow, and you're eating like that, and the world is rosy and good, and then they back the cattle trailer up, you're thinking to yourself, awesome. I bet we're going somewhere where there are even greener pastures. And you are. 
um, to the great greener pastures beyond, right? You're the last to know that that is your last trip if you're a cow. That's what he wants us to understand here. That, that if, if we are in that position of assuming that having wealth and self-indulgence is the goal and living in that way, our insides are growing desensitized and fat. And it's possible that as we live a, a desensitized to God and the gospel and the needs of others, a godless sort of life, materialistic, James wants them to know one day you're going to wake up and you're going to be on the wrong side of the cattle yard. Um, and even things that you didn't know, things that were hidden from you, will be, your eyes will be open. You will be brought to account. And he wants them and he wants us to wake up to that possibility now. See, the point of a prophetic passage is to rouse us from our sleep now before it actually happens. That's the whole goal. Um, is it possible that with your current use or the way you think about or the way you plan with money, is it possible that you are growing spiritually desensitized? Um, uh, less dependent on God, whether you have plenty or, or nothing? Is it possible that getting more or living a certain lifestyle is causing you to make decisions that run over the backs of other people and you know it, but you don't care? Is that possible? Any, any, this is a call to self-examination for us. Um, it's a call for us to begin to challenge our own assumptions because, again, we live in a world that assumes all of those things about materialism. We might be the last to know that it's actually affecting us, too. Um, if we think that money will solve our problems and we don't mind a little collateral damage if it gets us gain, and we really think that a life of self-indulgence is, is what we're after, it may be the case that you can't see anything beyond that. And that usually happens if you, if you actually don't know Christ. And you may be hearing that's true for you. You're not sure. Um, this is a hard word. It's a prophetic word. Possibly it pushes some buttons for you and makes you a little angry. And this is a good place to say, the God who made you is never afraid to make you a little angry if it will wake you up and push you toward repentance. Um, my encouragement to all of us is to hear this as a, a pronouncement of what will surely happen and a mercy to tell us so that we can turn now. And to know this, too. In the very chapter, or the very book after the book of James, Peter tells us that there's good news. There is an inheritance. There is all the things that you want in terms of uh, having plenty. You actually already have it. And the way he says it is you have an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading. It's the opposite of everything he says here. Everything that we have in this, in this life will absolutely rot. The inheritance that you can have in Christ is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, but it is kept in heaven for you. And you may have tastes of it now, but it's future. And that's going to require faith. We're going to have to live by faith and keep our eyes on Christ himself. Don't love money. All right. There is another angle from which we need to, to read this passage and, and understand it. Remember, this is written to churches ultimately. And if you were a Christian living in a decadent culture, right, you, you find yourself 
whether, again, whether you have plenty or, or not plenty, if you're surrounded by decadence that, that has that as its goal, and you're trying to live faithfully before God, you will find yourself at, at least mocked and ridiculed, possibly opposed, possibly oppressed, at worst persecuted, and everything in between. And as you hear these words, this prophetic pronouncement on the wicked who use their money in a weaponized fashion, what we're supposed to do is to hear it and to take heart. That's the other side of hearing a prophetic pronouncement. Take heart, why? Second point, uh, the judgment of God's enemies is a great hope for us. Turn the passage around and approach it from the perspective of an oppressed believer. There will be weeping and howling and misery for all those who have willfully, knowingly caused us weeping, howling, and misery. That's what James has already said the unrighteous rich are doing to believers. Earlier in the book, he said, they are the ones who oppress you and who drag you into court and who blaspheme the very name by which you're called. They blaspheme the name of, of your Lord. And you can just, it's so easy to think <clears throat> of the, the, the wealthy, power-hungry person in our world who is so tied to the assumptions of materialism that they would look at a Christian and our desire to honor Jesus, and they would just think of us, you weak fool, you dismissible, old-fashioned moron. Right? That would be the mentality. And it wouldn't be shocking to see yourself um, either passed over for employment or passed over for promotions because they don't want to deal with whatever you're bringing in. You could see yourself constantly asked to do things that would violate your conscience because the bottom line is the thing that drives the company, not your specific moral quibbles. And for every moment when you've been run over in that way for the cost of doing business or the collateral damage, the promise of this passage is that God will run over the wicked who do these things to his people. That's actually very good news for us. We confess it in the Shorter Catechism that Jesus executes the office of a king by restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. That's true. It's also a hard thing to believe because you and I don't see it. What, what do we see in this life? We don't see that kind of justice. What we see is the, the, the cruel, rich, and powerful become more cruelly rich and powerful. The wicked prosper. Those who hate everything that we believe are gaining steam in our world. It's been that way in every culture throughout every period of time. It's harder and harder to get a leg up if you're trying to be faithful and consistent in your devotion to Jesus and you don't play by the world's rules. This is going to require faith on our part, that God will be just and that justice is good news for us. Faith requires reasons, and we have one at the end of verse 4. He says the wages of the laborers are crying out against the rich. The, the cries of the oppressed harvesters have reached the ears of, here's the literal translation of that phrase, Yahweh of angelic armies. That is a warrior phrase. And it's throughout the Old Testament, if you read the Old Testament, that Yahweh of hosts, the Lord of hosts, is, is the, a picture of the Lord as the one who shows up to his oppressed people when they're oppressed, and he defends them. He shows up and he brings his might to bear, and he rescues them and saves them. James wants them to remember the stories of God's people in the past when God heard and he showed up. But he also wants them to understand that 
he might not show up in the way that we expect. Look at verse 6. He tells the rich, they have condemned, they've murdered the righteous person. He does not resist them. And on one level, that's James saying generally the unrighteous rich condemn and act with murderous intent, whether actual murder or withholding wages and starvation and et cetera, toward the righteous who believe the righteous don't resist. But it, it says it in a weird way, and we need to notice it. It's actually in the singular in the original language. It could read like this. You the unrighteous rich, have murdered the righteous one. He does not resist you. Now, we know there's only one righteous one who's ever lived. Um, and he was murdered. And there was money involved. 30 pieces of corroded silver, in fact. There was power in play. If you let him go, you are no friend of Caesar's the Jewish authorities said to Pilate. This prophetic announcement here is against all who stand in the same shoes as the Jewish and Roman authorities who crucified Jesus. They rolled over him. They persecuted him. They diminished him in every way. He goes to the cross without money. He goes to the cross without proper garments. He did not resist them like a sheep before its shears. He was silent, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. God's people are oppressed and cry out. And instead of coming as a warrior first, he comes first to be rolled over in weakness. That's what the cross is all about. What does the cross tell us? What our sin requires. This is why a prophetic word hits us who believe first. Imagine God shows up and measures your life, measures my life. If God shows up and measures my life, by my use of money, if he opens the ledgers and we go through every single expense that Hobie Wood has ever spent, and then we stop and we look at my desires. Let's talk about everything that Hobie has actually wanted, the things that have been his inmost desire. Let's talk about moments when Hobie has actually willfully ran over someone in order to get what he wants. Let me just tell you that is going to be a damning moment if it should happen. My suspicion is it would be for you as well. The cross reminds us that true justice demands our life. We do not hold up against the judgment of God. Unless God in his mercy, Yahweh of hosts, sends his son to take judgment in our place. And that's the good news that we believe and that is our absolute hope in life and in death. I hope that you believe it. If you don't, today's a good day to talk about it. We'd love to talk to you about that. If you do believe it, James also wants you to understand, if you follow him, you will suffer. You are now, verse 6, the righteous person, because you're united with Jesus, the righteous one. And um, you will be run over. And reduced to weakness. And the powerful and those who don't care about anything that you care about, but do care about money at all costs, whose hearts are fat, will sideline you at best, will reduce you in whatever way they can at worst. And every time that you experience that, James wants you to understand that is not God's justice against you. Because God's justice against you has been taken by Jesus at the cross. 
So what is it when we suffer? You're sharing in Christ's suffering, which is hard, but in the New Testament is considered a privilege. We follow him. We take up our cross and we walk the way he walked. And every cry that we utter to God for mercy and for justice and for the world to be made right goes into the ears of the God who sent his very son for us and who not only hears but has done something about it, not just at the cross, but there is a day when he does come back, Lord of hosts, sword in hand, mounted on the white horse to crush his enemies and to bring all of his people into a new heavens and a new earth. All that to say, take heart. We have reason. Take heart in every moment of suffering that you experience. Take heart when people who love money will crush you to get more of it, and you feel it. Take heart. Money is always an opportunity for us to be countercultural. And in fact, obedience to Christ demands it. You know what happens if you begin to value Jesus more than your bank account is you will find yourself generous in ways that absolutely make no financial sense. You'll find yourself making decisions based on spiritual gains that diminish your financial gains. You'll find yourself stewarding, whether you're in want or plenty, you'll find yourself wanting to steward whatever you have for the glory of God and not for your own good. You'll find yourself wanting to use your money to bless other people rather than run over them. You'll find yourself more like Joseph of Arimathea, who had power and position and gave, it, gave up his status and gave up his tomb, which was a picture of his status for the Lord Jesus and his cause, rather than Judas who gave up Christ so that he could have status and money. Um, but we're going to have to hold the line and we're going to have to hold up under pressure. And that means we can't go back to the world's values. And that's always going to be the temptation. We, we, have a, we, have, we can get the Stockholm Syndrome. This is not an actual diagnosis in the DSM, but popularly known. This is um, after the bank robbery in Stockholm, Sweden. Six days, hostages were kept by their captors. And at the end of it, a strange bond had formed between hostages and their captors, such that the hostages would not testify against them. They wouldn't speak against them. Because they kind of, they had this strange, weird love for the people who actually imprisoned them. And that is our relationship with money as Christians living on this side of the new heavens and new earth. So often we want to go back to the very thing that promises only to enslave us. And we won't speak against it and we won't make decisions that show that we belong to a new kingdom. Just a little more corroded gold and silver would sure make my life a lot easier. Right? Just a little more of the perishable inheritance while I wait for the imperishable. And we lose sight of what's real and true inside with our captors. And you can't take heart and you can't hold up under pressure and you can't stay faithful over the long haul until you die or Jesus returns if you have fallen back in love with luxury and self-indulgence. And so this morning you're invited by James again to turn your back on your captor and to turn on wealth. Um, come now, you reach, rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And they're coming. God will be the perfect judge, down to the thoughts and intentions of the human heart. So, so don't love money. Can't give you what you want anyway. C.S. Lewis sums it up so well. If I find in myself a desire 
which no experience in the world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing, to push us toward an imperishable inheritance that will never fail. That's what you were made for. That's what I was made for. And take heart. In all of your sufferings and persecutions and moments of mockery, the God of the universe hears your cries. And more than here, he showed up and the righteous one did not resist for your sake. And as you suffer, take heart. He will come and make all things right. Uh, let's pray together. Father, we have a weird relationship with money. It's complicated, and you know it. And so my prayer for each of us in this room is that you would unravel it, that you would um, help us to see what we really believe and think and assume. Un, or detach. Would you detach our hearts from riches and attach them to you, the source of all riches? Help us to love Christ and find him as our joy and delight such that we would become the most generous people, the most thankful people, people who are always looking to the good of the people around us and let it confound the world if, if need be. But would you help us, even as we suffer following Christ, let that witness be compelling to the world. Uh, help us, we pray. And for those who don't know you yet, would you open eyes and give the gift of faith today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.